to More Living with Jim Brogan, your source of information for living the best years of your life, your way. For more than a decade, host Jim Brogan and his expert guests have come together each week to share important news and advice that can impact the lives and well-being of those who are retired and those nearing retirement. Learn about issues like health and fitness, financial planning, social security benefits, investment advice, and more. And now, here's the host of More Living, Jim Brogan. Good morning, East Tennessee, and welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. You know, the economy has been very, very strong for the last few years. And we have a presidential election coming up next year. And as we know, it's very difficult for the opposing party to win a presidential race when the economy is strong. But are we headed to recession? We've also got all this impeachment stuff going on. How might that affect how things evolve over the course of the next 12 months? And the top candidates... On the Democratic side, how are they likely, How what, what are their policies, really, and how are they likely to affect the economy if they got elected and went into office? And then by, by uh, token, how would that affect your, yours and my pocketbook? That's what we're going to talk about today. We have Washington insider Ken Keyes. He is managing director of the Federal Policy Group in Washington, D.C. They provide sophisticated strategic and technical tax advice on tax policy matters before Congress, the U.S. Treasury Department, and the Internal Revenue Service. And he's really plugged in in Washington to how all of these things connect and how that might affect you and me. Good morning, Ken. Welcome to More Living. It's great to have you with us. Thank, thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. Yes, sir. Hey, real quickly, before we get into our the, the nuts and bolts of our discussion today, tell us about the Federal Policy Group. Tell us exactly what you do. Okay, so I'm a tax lawyer in Washington, and as I think probably all your listeners know, uh, most all tax policy comes out of Washington, either in the form of legislation or regulatory guidance from Treasury and IRS, which is is almost as important as legislative um, activity. And so I represent clients in dealing with those bodies uh, to address uh, both substantive policy issues, technical issues, um, all all things uh, that impact both individuals, businesses, the estate and gift tax, uh, pretty much the entire Internal Revenue Code. And I've, I've been doing that for about Almost 30 or 40 years. And we're definitely going to to get into how tax policy directly affects the economy and the arguments for and against different tax policies. So we're going to get into all that. It's going to be a very interesting show. Uh, Before we get to the economy and the markets and the upcoming election and the different candidates, especially we're going to focus really in on Biden and Warren since it looks like they're going to – it's probably going to come down to the two of them. Uh, you never know. But first, we've got this impeachment thing going on. So uh, I know everybody is talking about it. Let's just hit that really quickly. Um, how is the impe- How do you see this thing playing out, Ken? What is your opinion? Do you think that they'll impeach? And then if that happens, what do you think will happen in the Senate? Where do you see this going? Okay, so, you know, nobody's perfect with a crystal ball, but actually this one kind of looks pretty obvious. 
which is that uh, the House will end up probably voting for articles of impeachment. I don't see how Speaker Pelosi can hold off her left wing and not do that. Um, so that, that's almost a, a, probably a given, and it probably happens before Thanksgiving. Um, if that occurs, Mitch McConnell, who's the majority leader of the Senate, has already said if the House votes articles of impeachment, the Senate will do the trial because that's, that's how it works. The, the House doesn't impeach. They, they approve articles of impeachment. The actual trial, and that's what it is, occurs in the Senate. It's presided over by Chief Justice Roberts, and both sides can call witnesses, which is going to become an uncomfortable situation for everyone because the Democrats will be able to call Biden um, to talk about what his son was doing in the Ukraine. And, and meanwhile, the Democrats will be able to call Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, and ask him what he was doing in Ukraine. Uh, the, the Senate will then vote, and uh, based on the current situation, they will not have the 67 votes necessary to convict, and the whole thing will be over. And by the way, that timeline is not a lot different from what happened in 98 the last time we went through this with Bill Clinton. Um, the House Judiciary Committee in early October of 98 approved the articles of impeachment. The House passed them uh, in December. The trial was over by February of 99, and they moved on. Um, so the timeline I've laid out is consistent with what happened uh, the last time we went through this. So to be clear, you expect, and your crystal ball, who knows how accurate we are, but uh, you expect they would impeach by Thanksgiving. And then how long would the trial itself take in the Senate, do you think? I mean, what well, would be kind of normal, do you think? Well, nothing's normal here, just to be clear. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, a, a week a week or so. Oh, not a real long. So we're not talking about a long, drawn-out two-month process. I don't think so. Um, and the natural adjournment date for Congress at the end of the year is the Friday before Christmas. So that's December 20th. So you can kind of look out there and say, if McConnell's going to get this thing over with, um, he's going to need to finish it by December 20th because well, the members of Congress get real cranky if they're left, required to stay in, in town through Christmas. It, it isn't pretty. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what I would expect right now. So, and on this show today, the focus of this show is not to break down, you know, the, the details of what's really truly going on there. But I do just want to ask one quick question. And when I look at it from from where I sit, this looks like nothing but just pure politics with no goal other than you know, how is this, how can we potentially affect the election? I mean, I mentioned in my opening monologue, Ken, as you heard, that it's very difficult for an opposing party to beat an incumbent president in a strong economy. So do you think, do you agree that this is nothing more than politics and there's nothing real here? It's just a political charade. Or is that, am I going too far with that comment? Well, you know, it, it, it's a tough call. It, it, it is very political. There is no doubt about it. There are some people that would argue the House shouldn't even do impeachment because this is really all about whether Trump should or shouldn't be reelected. And we've got an election, you know, 12 months away, and we ought to let, let the country decide whether he's fit for office or not. Um, but then there are Democrats who 
uh, ardently believed that maybe something wrong was done here. Um, but you have to be re- honest that, that this is just a continuing aftermath of what was the incredible bitterness after the 2016 election, which has just never dissipated um, and hasn't been great for the country one way or the other. But it's just hard to deny that it isn't a continuation of that, uh, the result of the attitude that people had following the election. And I'll just make a comment in terms of, because um, I've had people ask me, how, you know, might this impeachment affect the stock market? And stock market, you know, doesn't like things that are uncertain and it creates volatility. But in the end, I think most people are aware of where we're probably going with this. Unless some kind of new evidence surfaces, uh, we're probably going to get through this and he's still going to be the president. But, you know, we're, we've got the longest bull market run in U.S. history. Corporate profits are at all-time highs. Unemployment is at a 50-year low. Inflation is low. Interest rates are low. And they're probably going in even lower, according to the Federal Reserve. So there's a lot of strong economic signs. There are concerns. We might see recession in the next couple of years. But what I would urge you as you listen this morning is don't be focusing on the daily headlines because that does create a lot of jumping around in the markets because markets react in the short term. Um, if we look at history, especially under Nixon and under Clinton, the impeachment didn't really have any real effect on the stock market. The stock markets in those times were driven by other economic factors that were going on. So don't panic or make any rash decisions. Uh, Ken, do you have any comment you would make about how this might affect the stock market? So, so I agree with you because I, I think it, it, the realistic likelihood that the impeachment occurs and that he gets acquitted is already baked into the market. Um, I represent a lot of people on Wall Street, and I talk to them uh, virtually every day. And they long ago concluded this is largely a political exercise um, and that Probably the House is going to impeach him and the Senate's going to um, uh, acquit him. So, so they, I think it's already baked into the markets. The stuff that isn't baked into the markets is things like what happened yesterday, which is announcing a, a deal with China on trade. And as you saw, the markets like skyrocketed over that positive news because the markets were pessimistic that the Chinese and the U.S. could get a deal in the two days that they had scheduled for negotiations on Thursday and Friday, and they did get a deal. So those are the kind of things that are market moving. It's things that nobody actually knows what the outcome is going to be until it occurs. Impeachment, I think most people think they know what's going to happen. When we come back, we're going to talk about the economic reality of what's going on. GDP growth has been very strong. Wage growth has been very strong. I'm going to have some of those numbers. How much has deregulation and tax policy uh, from President Trump and his administration and from Congress affected that? And how might Biden and Warren change the dynamics if they are elected And how would that affect you and me and the economy? So don't go away as we visit with Ken Keyes. He is the managing director of the Federal Policy Group. When we come back here here on More Living with Jim Brogan, only on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more.
listening to More Living with Jim Brogan. During the week, Jim is a financial advisor, an author and speaker with an MBA from the University of Tennessee who specializes in helping people in or near retirement plan for the next phase of their lives. You can reach Brogan Financial during the week at 865-862-6800 or on the web at brokenfinancial.com. And now, here's Senior Market Advisor Magazine's 2011 National Advisor of the Year and host of More Living, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. I'm your host, Jim Brogan, and we're visiting this morning with Washington insider Ken Keyes. And we're going to talk about the economy and how the upcoming presidential election and the various candidates could end up impacting our wallets. Where have we been? Where are we headed? Ken, let's kind of talk just a brief review of where we are. So... You know, we had the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that went into effect. We've had a lot of deregulation. Uh, We know GDP growth uh, has been up substantially since the prior, really, 15 years. And wages are also up. And I want to mention that real quickly. Uh, Employee compensation in 2015 and 2016 went up 4.9% and 2.7% respectively. So 2016 wage growth was up 2.7%. And in 27 and 2017 and 2018, employee compensation went up 45 and 5%. So to put those numbers in context, in President Trump's first two years, employee compensation increased $281 billion more than it did during President Barack Obama's last two years. Now, in your opinion, Ken, how, how much was this, the Democrats would say this was a continuation of the economic recovery that he started? Uh, Republicans would say this was due to the deregulation and the tax cuts that he's implemented. What do you say? So, um, you know, this is a situation where success has 100 fathers and mothers. um, But uh, it's undeniable that that Trump and his administration have done significant deregulation. And most businesses, when they were polled, uh, during the eight years, the Obama administration would say the biggest obstacle to them for hiring, uh, for growth, was concern about government regulation. Um, so I think it's hard to not see that the deregulation has been a major factor in terms of economic growth, job growth. And as you point out, the unemployment numbers are just stunning. Uh, the August number came in at 3.7%. Uh, there was a time that most economists said a full employment economy was 5% because uh, people are moving from one job to another. Uh, so when you get down to 3.7%, you're past a full employment economy. You're actually, you should be worried about a, a shortage of labor. Um, so, um, so clearly deregulation was a big deal. Uh, the tax cut uh, is significant, but I actually think deregulation is bigger. Just to put the tax cut in context it was about a trillion three and i know a trillion three sounds like a lot of money but but let me put it in context the 10-year projected revenues of the federal government right now uh for 2020 to 2029 are 45 trillion dollars 45 trillion it's hard to even get your head around that number so a trillion three is a big tax cut and certain elements of it were 
very decisive um, in terms of doubling the standard deduction. It eliminated uh, the need to itemize deductions for 60% of taxpayers. That 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 was a big deal. Um, but I, but I so I, I agree with you. I think both the tax cut and deregulation. But frankly, deregulation to me is probably a a, a bigger factor, and and it's been a very helpful one to to businesses, in particular small businesses, because small businesses are the least positioned to handle federal government regulation. Um, so it's, it's really important. And that's where a lot of job creation happens. We're visiting this morning with Ken Keyes. He's the managing director of the Federal Policy Group in Washington, D.C. He's a tax attorney. He's been in Washington for a long time. And we're talking about where we're headed. And I do want to talk a little bit, Ken, about the relationship of tax rates and economic growth. And for our listeners, just give a brief review. I want to just, the, the Laffer curve. So Art Laffer was in on President Reagan's staff in the 80s. He actually lives, I think, still here in Nashville, Tennessee now. But, um, you know, the Laffer curve is an argument that says, what is the optimal relationship between tax rates and maximizing tax revenue for the government. Because, you know, if you raise tax rates too much, it could stifle economic growth. And even with higher tax rates, you end up with less tax revenue. Uh, and then the, another argument would be if you lower tax rates, you create more economic growth and therefore have more tax revenue. But if you lower tax rates too much, it can kind of shoot yourself in the foot. So what is your stance on that whole argument? Do you think we're in a good spot right now with our tax situation? Well, I, I do, but let me just be clear. This is one of those issues that goes from being an economic debate to a theological debate. And uh, the, the folks on each side have their strongly held views. The liberals and Democrats, we don't call them liberals anymore. We call them progressives because they got sore about that. But, but the progressives actually believe if you raise tax rates higher, people will work harder so they have the same amount of after-tax money left over. Now, people on the other side say, well, they would have already been working harder if they could have made more money. Um, and, and so pe- people on each side of this debate have their strongly held views. My own view is that whenever income tax rates get above 50%, you're in a danger zone. Because if individual income tax rates rise above 50%, people have to stop and think, am I better off going from using my time for work to leisure? Because if I get to keep less than half of what I'm making, why bother? And right now, when you combine the state and federal Income tax rates were slightly below 50%, not a, not a whole lot, but we're below 50%. My, my own view is if you go above 50%, you start to really discourage people from being productive. Well, and as an example, and this is an extreme example, but back in the 50s, you know, Ronald Reagan in his book, in, in, in all the stuff that's been written on him, you know, he would make three movies in a year and then stop working because... There was a 94% tax rate for income over $200,000, and then there was a state tax in California, so he was basically working for free. So now that's an extreme example, but he would work and then do three films, and then he would stop working, which is kind of, I'm just kind of piggybacking on what you just said there. Um, I, I do want to mention there was a pretty interesting poll from Pew Research. Now this was, it's a, it's a little over a month and a half old. 
but they found that 55% of the public say national economic conditions are excellent or good, and 71% say they think their finances will improve next year. So that's very optimistic from the American public, and that's the election backdrop that we're going into next year. So let's get into that just a little bit, Ken. Uh, let's focus primarily on Warren and Biden. I guess we could uh, throw Bernie Sanders in there, too. But, you know, th- there's a lot of talk from both of them that they want to bolster the middle class. What would be your comment as to what has happened in the middle class over the last two or three years as the economy has gotten stronger? How has that affected the mem- middle class or has it been disproportionate to the wealthy? Well, uh, so there's a lot of pieces to that um, to that story. I guess uh, I keep please. asking you. I keep asking you these questions that I think uh, we can answer, and then they're probably a basis for a two-hour discussion. <laughs> well, they could, they could be, but but but, lo, but let me give you a couple answers. Which is um, clearly low unemployment benefits the middle class. Um, the middle class are most vulnerable to losing jobs when there's high unemployment, uh, and, and so the the low. Uh, uh, unemployment, clearly a benefit to the middle class. Low interest rates, huge benefit to the middle class. Um, Less regulation, I'd say also a benefit to the middle class. So a lot of what we've seen in the last couple of years, and as you point out, the actual real wage growth. um, Now, now at the same time, um, it it is clear that as the stock market has had this incredible run, that uh, wealthy investors have done very well, but let me point out who owns most corporate stock. It's pension plans. In other words, uh, it really workers. And Peter Drucker wrote an article in, I think, 1984 called Pension Plan Socialism, in which he argued that we're actually more socialistic. Uh, this will be uh, news to Warren and Biden or, or Bernie, but we're actually more socialistic than the Soviet Union because the pension plans actually own most corporate stock and therefore the workers own the businesses. Um, now that's a slight exaggeration to be clear. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think the, the good economy has clearly benefited the middle class. Um, and, and uh, it's, it's going to be a key factor in, in the election. And it goes back to one of Clinton's advisors who said it's the economy, stupid. I think that was James Carville, if I recall correctly. Well, we're going to get into that. When we come back, we're going to dive into what is Joe Biden proposing? What is Elizabeth Warren proposing? We know that there are massive programs that, especially with Warren, how do they propose paying for that? And how would those tax increases potentially affect us and then eventually uh, our wallets? So don't go away. Also, in my dollars and cents segments, five reasons of why it's sometimes very attractive to accumulate money in a traditional IRA or 401k as opposed to a Roth. So don't you won't want to miss that as we have more here on More Living with Jim Brogan, only on News Talk 98.7 WOKI.
Want to be sure you are getting the most out of your retirement? For all the years of your retirement? That's the primary goal of More Living with Jim Brogan and our Dollars and Cents segment, where we provide you with an important financial tip that will help positively impact the quality of your life in retirement. And now, here's Jim with this week's Dollars and Cents tip. Five reasons to hold on to traditional IRAs. You know, the long-term benefits of tax-free accumulation and no lifetime required minimum distributions make a persuasive case to go all in on the Roth IRA, especially younger workers, uh, certainly under 40, maybe even under age 50. But there are reasons it can be good to have money in a traditional IRA when we're retired. Of course, keep in mind on the traditional IRA, you're getting the upfront tax deduction that you're not getting on the Roth, but then you're taxed when you come out in retirement. So what are five reasons why that's a good thing? Uh, in retirement. Uh, the number one reason would be potentially lower tax brackets in retirement, especially in the sweet spot between retirement age and age 70 and a half when you have to start taking the required minimum distributions because you can very oftentimes fill up those lower tax brackets at 10 or 12 percent, even 22 percent, when in your working years you were at 25 or 28 or 33 percent. So you can fill up these lower tax brackets with effective tax planning. You got a deduction when you were in a 28 or a 33% tax bracket. Now you're being taxed when maybe you're in a 12 or a 22% bracket. So you can fill up lower tax brackets. Reason number two, medical expenses. Many retirees take significant medical deductions, maybe in excess of $100,000 if you're in a long-term care facility or nursing home and don't have insurance. Well, you're not going to get the value of those deductions if you don't have more taxable income on your return to begin with. So that's a good way to offset where you're essentially getting tax-free distributions from your IRA. Uh, number three, business losses. If you own a business and you're having losses, you can uh, you can therefore offset those losses with essentially tax-free distributions from your traditional IRA. So they can help offset business losses. You're not going to get the value of those business losses if you don't have much taxable income in retirement. Number four, beneficiary tax rates. When you die and your your IRA goes to your kids, they're going to be taxed when they withdraw the money at their tax rate. Is their tax rate lower than yours? Now, we don't really know what the future holds with tax rates, but we would be remiss to not consider the impact of beneficiary tax rates when they take out the distributions from your IRA. And number five, maybe as big as any, the qualified charitable distribution. For those that are in the year of 70 and a half or older, you can give money directly to charity or to church from an IRA and get a page one tax deduction, which is much more powerful than taking a charitable deduction on page two. Many of you are not even itemizing, and even if you are itemizing, by taking a deduction on page one, 
if you do a QCD, you're potentially lowering your Social Security taxation and your Medicare premiums. A deduction on page two does not help you with taxes on Social Security income and Medicare premiums. So those are five reasons with effective tax planning it may be good to hold on to some traditional IRA versus Roth. That's our Dollars and Cents segment for this week. You can find this week's Dollars and Cents segment and others by visiting BroganFinancial.com. Do please check us out online at BroganFinancial.com. You can sign up. We've got a weekly news blast, e-blast, going out every week to bring you up to date of all of our content we're putting out. It'll have our dollars and cents segment, links to my blog posts, uh, and all the other information that we're putting out. Links to this radio show, for example, will go out this week. So you can sign up for that at BroganFinancial.com. You can sign up for that e-blast. Also, my last college class, adult education for those of you that are retired or getting close to retiring it's a two-part class it's this tuesday october 15th and then the 22nd two two-hour sessions at pellissippi state right there at hardin valley in the heart of west knoxville to find out more about that class it's called thrive financially in retirement it's seven key areas that i think everybody needs to know about to create a successful financial plan That'll, that'll ensure that your money lasts longer than you do. Go to PellissippiRetirementPlanning.com for more information. Again, PellissippiRetirementPlanning.com. Uh, or you can call Pellissippi State directly at 539-7167. This is the last class I'm doing until the new year. And it's a great time to be looking at all this stuff because we are at the, at, at, in the longest bull market run in history. A bear market in the early years of retirement can be devastating if you don't have a financial plan in place to protect your income in the short term when we have bear markets. And that is a big point of emphasis as well as tax planning and health care catastrophe and legacy and IRA distributions, all of these things. So again, go to PellissippiRetirementPlanning.com. You can get more information. We're visiting with Ken Keyes. He is Managing Director of the Federal Policy Group in Washington, D.C. And, uh, Ken, let's go into um, especially Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. I don't want to diminish Bernie Sanders in that equation. I think it's highly unlikely uh, that guy would get nominated. But I guess we should throw him in there because he is one of the three leaders right now. Uh, First, we all know that they're proposing some massive programs that have to be where there's a lot of free stuff they're wanting to give out. So Warren and Sanders are proposing a wealth tax. So for those that are that have a lot of money, uh, over thirty five or fifty million dollars net worth, uh, Elizabeth Warren is proposing a wealth tax of two percent. Uh, Bernie Sanders is proposing a wealth tax of anywhere from one to eight percent. So they would be taxing not income, but their net worth every year. Uh, that would hit obviously the wealthy. They say there's wealth inequality in America and we need to benefit the middle class. How do you think that would affect the economy and therefore the middle class? Well, so we've, we've never really done anything like this. I mean, we have an estate tax. So when people buy, we do tax the value of their estate, but that's a one-time tax. Uh, as you point out, this would be an annual tax. So it'd be collected every year. Um, and just, just 
in terms of the complexity of that, I can't even begin to tell you how complex it would be because you essentially have to value all your assets every year. Yeah, not everything. Um, some things are not marked to, to market. You know, that's very difficult to value liquid assets. Oh, well, closely held businesses are a perfect example. Real estate. Um, yes, if you own stock in the stock market, you can value that. But uh, there are many assets that do not, as you point out, have a readily determinable fair market value. This would be a bonanza for tax lawyers because uh, every year they would get to argue with the IRS about how much you really worth. And, and the other thing I would point out is th- this is very insidious because this is how the income tax started. When the income tax was first enacted in the early part of the 19th century, uh, it was at 2%, 3%. And it only applied to people above a certain income level. And, of course, we've seen how it's changed over time. Um, it, so, so we don't really know what this would do. There's concern that it would cause a lot of people to move assets out of the United States. I mean, we're, we're clearly in an uncharted uh, area here. And the, the, the numbers are kind of make your head hurt. Um, well, Ken, fundamentally, a- I've got to interject here. Ken, fundamentally... Yeah. You know, the the estate tax itself, it, I have problems with because you're talking about wealth that's been built with after-tax dollars, and then you turn around, you're going to tax it again. So in this case, you're looking at wealth that's been created in America with after-tax dollars, and then you're going to say, we're going to turn around and we're going to apply an additional tax that seems so anti-American and so anti-capitalist to me. Well, and there's there's certainly um, many many people who feel very strongly that that is true. Um, and the problem that Warren, in particular, has is she has, as she as she says, I've got a plan for that. Well, every plan is, as you point out, free stuff for everyone, and that's not a complete exaggeration. Uh, but the cost of her plans are literally in the trillions. Um, and if you look at our current deficit, which is about a trillion a year, which, by the way, we should all be worried about. Um, but but if she's going to add trillions and trillions of dollars to federal government spending, she's going to have to pay for it from somewhere. And uh, you can only raise individual income tax rates so high. You can only raise corporate rates so high. So she's talking about things like a wealth tax and it's it's going into uh, territory we've never been, so it's it's very risky economically. Yeah, that scares the heck out of me. I, I I mean, the way it would fundamentally change things. I think your analogy to the income tax in 1914, it started at, I mean, it was 1%, and you had to make over three or $4,000 uh, in order to even get hit with the 1% initial bracket. And the highest bracket was 7% if you had income over $500,000. That was in 1914. But we opened up Pandora's box, and now we have, you know, I call them the the tax code, the Full Employment Act for CPAs and attorneys, because it really takes a Ph.D. to understand it. I think it's a great analogy of where we would be headed with a wealth tax. Um, Now, Joe Biden... He's not proposing nearly as much of a reach in social programs and other things that the you know, for example, he's proposing proposing two years of free community college. He has backed off paying for four years of state universities, um, which is you know not as aggressive. Now he's talking about two big ways he would change tax policy. One would be to increase 
the capital gains rate for people that make over a million dollars, long-term capital gains would be taxed as ordinary income, which is a huge thing because the long-term capital gains tax treatment is an outstanding tax planning tool uh, for all Americans. And then the second would be eliminating the step-up in tax basis at death. So if you have highly appreciated stock or, or real estate, when you die, those capital gains taxes go away. He would eliminate that benefit. Um, what are What is your sense, being a tax expert, Ken, on how that might would affect the economy eliminating by raising the capital gains tax on the wealthy and eliminating step-up in tax basis at death? Well, so let's let's start with the step up in tax basis because this one is most people do not really understand how unbelievably uh, punitive this would be. When you die, if your value of your estate is above a certain level, it, you pay the estate tax, and the estate tax is as high as forty percent. So what we're talking about is paying the estate tax, and then your heirs having to again pay a tax on the uh, untaxed or, or the appreciation that's occurred with respect to the assets on which you've already paid the estate tax. So <clears throat> it's, it's a, it's in effect, an effective tax rate in the 70% range, which most people would say is kind of confiscatory. Um, to, to tax capital gains at ordinary income tax rates raises another set of issues. Um, for example, one of the reasons we have historically had a lower tax rate on capital gain income is to, to appreciate the fact that part of what you're taxing is inflationary gains. So most, most economists would say that's not real gain um, because inflation is just keeping track with the rate in which the economy is growing. So historically, we've had lower tax rates on capital gains, but it's been to reflect the fact that it's not all real income because a portion of it's inflationary. In fact, in some cases, all of it might be inflationary gain. Um, so the, the, these rules did not come to exist by accident. They are based on a long uh, period of thought given to it by both Democrat and Republican policymakers. Um, so what's being proposed here is pretty radical. Is, is all you can say. I'll kind of just, I'll piggyback on two things you said there. Uh, one is we do get a double taxation under the current estate laws because of the buildup in retirement accounts that have never been taxed for income tax. They are taxed to the beneficiaries, as I covered in my dollars and cents segment, yet they're also exposed to the estate tax. So that that's a little bit of a problem there. Uh, and then on the, the, the capital gains, I completely uh, agree that capital gains should incentivize investment. I think your take on the, how the inflation and, and the history of that is very, very interesting. Uh, but, you know, for those of you listening, we talk often on this program and in a lot of my education about the ability in the early years of retirement to realize capital gains at a 0% tax rate, uh, which a lot of people don't even, aren't even aware that there is a 0% tax rate on long-term capital gains up to certain levels. We want to take advantage of those things. And um, in many ways, retirees are facing an uphill battle anyway because of things like taxation on Social Security benefits have, has never, the thresholds have not changed in 30-some years, 35 years from the 80s. Uh, so uh, I'm just a big fan of the of the incentive 
in the, the incentive offered by law, by the lower rates on long-term capital gains. Um, but it's interesting. I don't have the education you do, uh, Ken, and knowing how this could eventually affect the economy. Sounds like the step up in tax basis could really be a hornet's nest a little bit. Hey, we're going to get to our last break, and when we come back, I do want to hit just real briefly on regulation, but then I do want to talk with Ken about his views of are we heading to recession? There's been so much talk in the last couple of months. It's been kind of drowned out a little bit because of the impeachment talk. But are we headed for recession in the next year or two? What does Ken think? So stay with us as you listen to More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. for listening to More Living with Jim Brogan. If you miss any of today's show or want to listen to it again, visit broganfinancial.com where you can access the podcast and other educational materials to help you in your journey through retirement. And now, here's Senior Market Advisor Magazine's 2011 National Advisor of the Year and host of More Living, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Check us out online, broganfinancial.com, upcoming class at Pellissippi, pellissippiretirementplanning.com, October 15th and 22nd. We're visiting with Ken Keyes. He's managing director of the Federal Policy Group in Washington, D.C. Ken, on, on regulation, I just have to mention one real quick thing. We don't have a lot of time in this last segment, but I was reading up on... Biden and Warren and their policy and their proposals. And there's one thing from Elizabeth Warren that jumps out that is extremely concerning to me. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna read the way it reads. Requiring corporations to obtain a federal charter legally obligating the companies to serve the greater public interest rather than profits. That seems incredibly dangerous to me. Yeah, it's it's pretty far out there, I have to say. Um, and but she's a true believer, um, so don't be confused if you think she's just saying it to get elected and she'll drop it if she is elected because she she really believes in this stuff. And it's so this election in many ways is a, is about some fundamental choices that people are going to be making as to which direction they want um, the U.S. economy and government to go. And she does she's she's transparent. She puts it all out there and says, here's all the stuff I'm for. Yeah, not, there's debates on both sides of what's best for this country. But when you start talking about changing the re, the fundamental legal reason corporations exist, uh, I start to become very, very uncomfortable personally, just on that one item especially. Uh, real quickly, but, uh, Ken, we only have about a minute or so, but are, uh, uh, a lot of people talked about are we headed to recession? There has been some slowdown in GDP growth. Uh, some of that's been driven by the trade wars. The, 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 the thing yesterday was a step in the right direction with trade, easing up on the trade tariffs. Uh, we had the, 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 the interest rate situation is, is, is very, uh, unnatural. Do you think we're headed to recession in the next year or two? Okay, so so I, I don't, um, but I'm a, a guy who thinks the glass is half full, but I'll, I will tell you why I, I don't think we're headed to a recession. I think um, on the trade front, it's not just the China deal. I think there's a reasonably good chance that Congress will approve the renegotiated NAFTA 
agreement. It's called the USMCA-US-Mexico-Canadian agreement. Um, that would be a positive for, for our economy as well because Canada and Mexico are two of our biggest trading partners. Also, one issue we haven't mentioned, but it's, a, I think, a really big deal. We are basically energy independent today. The United States is because of fracking and oil production. Imagine 20 years ago if the Saudi Arabian oil fields had been attacked by missiles what would have been the reaction of the U.S. stock market? Um, given the fact that we are now energy independent, um, it, it, that's a not, I, I don't want to say non-event, but it's not a crisis event for us. So the indicators are pretty positive uh, on key issues. And again, it's trade, interest rates, energy independence, deregulation. Ken, thank you so much. We're out of time. That's Ken Keyes, the Federal Policy Group. Thank you for being with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.